Hello and welcome to the Hacking State Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Jonah Davids. Jonah is the Communications Director at the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. He also has a new substack called Mental Disorder, which explores the science and politics of mental health uh, from a date and different perspective. I found that Jonah is always a, an interesting and provocative person to uh, interact with. So Jonah, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for uh, coming on. So like I said, you've got this new Substack. It's focused on how you can assess mental health in a data-driven way. And I just wanted to start by asking you, like, what was the impetus behind starting this project? What was the sort of the problems you saw with the current state of mental health that you thought would be good to begin addressing through this work? So a project like this has been a long time coming for me. I'm 24 years old now, and my interest in mental health started when I was uh, maybe eight or nine years old. I was always kind of a unhappy kid. Um, my sister had all kinds of behavioral issues, so I would like read parenting books that my parents left around the house to try and figure out uh, you know, how to sort her out. Um, but I've just always been really interested in like why people seem so unhappy, how to feel better, how to have a better life. Um, and you know, as I grew up, that seemed to be a bigger and bigger fixation of the culture more broadly. Um, mm -hmm. And in some sense, it took on a bit of a, a political element to it with, you know, increased calls for mental health acceptance. Um, mental health in some ways became uh, an identity like any other um, that people could sort of participate in and that you could use to get uh, you know, in some cases more medical treatment, but in other cases, certain kinds of maybe epistemic power in, in social situations, um, you know, telling people, well, you don't really understand what this is like because you're not uh, depressed or something like that. Um, so growing up in that kind of environment, I wanted to become a psychiatrist and I figured out, oh, well, you know, what better way to learn more about mental health and help people than to uh, do that. Uh, so I went to school for psychology and within about the first year, I sort of noticed that reading all these psychological texts, reading the actual studies, that the picture of mental health that had been painted by popular culture and in some cases, mental health professionals themselves was just totally off, you know? Uh, so, so the big thing that really stuck out at me, for example, was there's like no evidence that um, the more credentialed you are, so being a psychiatrist versus being a normal therapist versus being a nobody makes you better at giving talk therapy, right? Mm. So, so one famous study I remember was they had like English professors give talk therapy and psychologists give talk therapy. You know, presumably if be, being a psychologist made you a better therapist, you would see a big difference there, but you don't see anything, right? So um, so basically the more I actually studied psychology and the more I learned about it, the more I was like, okay, this is really, really different than uh, what I thought. And many of the kinds of claims that the mental health professionals and maybe popular culture, mental health culture are making are just really not backed up by much evidence. Um, so over time, I became less interested in the actual, uh, you know, hands-on improving somebody's mental health and more in the like, how did it get to be this way? And, you know, what could we actually do to uh, harness these kind of data-driven uh, insights um, to make the mental health system better? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, it's interesting that you brought up sort of that uh, that track that you were on, because I remember reading one of your pieces a while ago about um, your sort of decision to leave grad school and kind of the problems that you saw inherent in the, you know, kind of the incentives that were there and also just the the value of the stuff that you were learning, you know, things like the replication crisis um, that were continuing to be taught in classes and kind of this double speak that professors would do where they tell you one thing in private and then they are doing another thing in public. And it seems to me like part of this was that you just became very disillusioned with the current state of the field. Would that be a way to um, describe it? Yeah. D disillusioned for sure. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's fair to say that some amounts of disillusionment are warranted. Sometimes it's easy to go overboard. Um, but I just, in general, don't like pretending that, okay, what I'm doing or what I'm learning is 
uh, is really important or really true when it's not. And we all kind of secretly know it's not. And so, yeah, the, mm. the same issues, you know, of the replication crisis and psychology and other social sciences um, sort of dovetailed nicely with my sort of noticing this really big gap between what medical or mental health professionals were, were saying um, and what sort of, you know, licensing and occupational standards were and uh, what the data actually suggested. So, yeah, the lesson is not the lesson of the, of the replication crisis is not to totally ignore uh, all the data or all the professionals, but to just, you know, look carefully, carefully look critically and see, OK, like the stuff that holds up, what is it saying? Uh, mm -hmm. Is it saying these things are really important, make really big impacts or is it sort of saying the opposite? Right. And so I guess we can start to dig into a few of the topics that you've written about, written on and kind of drill down on some of the details when we talk about the, you know, fitting the data to the, you know, re reputation or the narratives within the field. That seems to be a lot of what your work is, is really about is digging into um, kind of the empirical side of things and seeing if that actually matches a lot of the uh, the narratives that um, are commonly held or or even espoused by the fields themselves. So, for example, one of the pieces that you did was on C CBT, uh, that is clinical behavioral therapy, um, and whether oh, cognitive, it's, cognitive behavioral therapy. Oh, sorry, cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Um, and the degree to which it's uh, as effective or more effective than uh, than other talk therapies. Um, so you wrote that, um, you know, essentially the, from, from what you can tell of uh, various, you did some summaries of some various um, studies and meta-analyses on this, um, is that uh, cognitive behavioral therapy basically uh, established itself as the kind of gold standard because it showed some efficaciousness um, in very rigorous way. Um perhaps earlier than other forms of talk therapy, but that overall, even though it is effective at treating, for example, depression, it doesn't appear to be more effective than other kinds of talk therapy, right? Um, so talk to me a little bit about what was sort of the, um, the, the way you were sort of thinking about that when you started to dig into um, the assessment of CBT and what you're sort of drawing um, in terms of conclusions from uh, making that analysis? So in psychology for quite a long time, there's been sort of this idea of like the dodo bird verdict, which is mm. uh, I think was created by Hans Isink or something like that. And it's just it's basically this idea that um, all the therapies don't really do anything. And even if they, or if they do something, it's all kind of the same. Um, and that's kind of been a question for a long time because, you know, in the history of psychology, right, you have Freud coming out with a talking cure and that takes on a lot of prominence and people start copying that. And sort of then you've got different approaches branching off from that. But as you said, with CBT, they started to really take it very seriously um, as a sort of uh, scientific uh, idea and, and we're testing it pretty, pretty rigorously. Um, and so that takes off, uh, people then say, okay, it's the gold standard. It's better than these other therapies, which then sort of come to be seen as less scientific or pseudoscientific. Um, but then there's people sort of always sort of hovering around that being like, well, is it really true? Is CBT really that much better? Is there something about CBT, which, you know, involves, uh, CBT is like the idea that your, you know, your beliefs, your thoughts, your behaviors are all sort of related. So if you change one, change the other. Um, is there something about that framework and, and the sort of way that it's done? You know, they have books like Mind Over Mood that you can buy and do it yourself. Uh, what about that in particular makes it so much better? And people spent a lot of time like really digging into it and coming up with these elaborate arguments for why that's so much better than psychodynamic therapy or Freudian therapy or, you know, um, all this stuff. And uh, at the end of the day, when you look at all the evidence and you have uh, you know, all the studies sort of side by side, especially studies where you compare CBT to these other therapies directly. So it's the same study. Some people got CBT, some people got so other kind of therapy. You can really see that, you know, it doesn't make a, a big difference if there's a difference at all. Um, definitely not a, a statistically significant difference. Now, what does that mean? 
Well, you could sort of interpret it a couple different ways. So one way would be that, well, all therapy is just good. Therapy is, is good in and of itself. It doesn't really matter what the method is. You know, it's just so good that no matter what we do, no matter whether we frame it as being about your thoughts and feelings or it's about your, you know, id ego, superego, um, however you frame it, it's just so good to talk to people that it's going to deliver, you know, positive results. And then the other way of framing it is, well, it's all a placebo effect. You know, just we've we've convinced millions of people that this is has some kind of um, mental health improving, you know, property to it, and uh, and so by doing it, no matter sort of how we frame it, um, people just think they're going to get better, and they do. Hmm. So. Okay. All right. So so that's sort of the the framing that you are setting up for us, and. One of the things that I wanted to uh, talk to you about was that maybe there's room for a third other thing, okay, <laughs> um, so to speak, which is like, could it be perhaps that um, so so like one takeaway is like, maybe, yes, you're right, maybe all the talk therapies are just like somewhat effective, right, and decently effective. And it doesn't matter which one you choose. Um, I think that's sort of how you ended the article was sort of like, uh, patients should be less picky or something like that. Um, and that's like one takeaway. And I guess even if it is just a placebo, you could say the same thing, right? Like, um, now maybe that means like you could do some other activity. Like I could tell you, oh, you need to just like go for a walk in the park or something like that. And if you believe that, then, um, maybe it would have the same effectiveness. Uh, as something like talk therapy, let's say you you go for a one hour walk once a week or something like that. Um, but I guess what I, I was talking to a friend of mine about this piece um, after reading it, and he had a different take, which was which I'm going to present to you now, which was that um, perhaps the issue is that these um, the effectiveness of these therapies in particular cases it's just not very amenable to the methods of like a standardized, uh, you know, clinical trial. And that really the issue is that you need to get much more um, particular or much more fine grained about um, certain aspects of the therapy. Like, for example, the fit of a particular method to an individual patient, or um, he suggested that actually what you really would want to be paying attention to is the quality of the relationship of the patient to the therapist. And that it's actually this um, this uh, joining that between two individuals that is actually more important than necessarily the method itself. Um, so what do you what do you think about those uh, sort of objections? Um, so the so there's the sort of objection that, OK, it's not fine grained enough. Right. So maybe this is just too we're painting with too broad a brush. There's the objection that the things that actually matter are going to be more like your relationship with the therapist or sort of other uh, variables that happen within the therapy. Um, and the third one that I'll add um, that I hear a lot of psychotherapists uh, talk about when they criticize these kinds of studies is they say all these studies are, you know, looking at like eight, 10 weeks of therapy, often less. Mm -hmm. A real therapeutic breakthrough doesn't happen till like maybe like six months uh, to a year. Um, so I think those are all interesting. The, the second one about, well, maybe it's about the relationship to the person, um, or to the therapist. I, I do think there are, are studies where they look at like, how much does relationship fit, you know, increase your chance of having a positive outcome. And it does increase your chance of having a positive outcome, but I think it's not by as much as, you know, people might think maybe it's, uh, I mean, I, I should really write an article on it, but I, I think it's around, you know, maybe 20, 30 percent of the variance in outcomes could be explained by that. So that's not nothing, but that's, you know, not it's not like um, a huge difference. Of course, that's on average. Um, in terms of, you know, some people have maybe fit better with other therapies. I would say, yeah, probably. And I think that's actually uh, a good reason to. um treat each therapy with less reverence and not get so hung up on like, oh, this therapy is evidence-based and this one is not. Um, mm. Because maybe really rational people do well with cognitive behavioral therapy. Maybe those kinds of people really like to see themselves as sort of um, 
you know, as having widgets inside, they can turn and like make their anxiety less or something. And maybe there's other people who are more holistic, who want some kind of um, more feeling, you know, touchy feely thing um, or people who want something more spiritual or religious. So I would say hundred percent, I think, you know, we should have less reverence for each therapy so that people feel more comfortable uh, choosing among them. Um, but sort of, but I would say that all these criticisms, you know, I don't think get at the problem, which is that uh, for so many people who want to get therapy uh, or, you know, it, could, it might be um, insurance providers, it might be programs, they're only going to fund evidence-based like CBT or these like evidence-based therapies based on, mm -hmm. you know, clinical trials, data, whatever, whatever. And I just think that if the goal is to actually get more people to do therapy and to have a positive experience, whatever the therapy um then we should try and get past that kind of thinking and say, okay, maybe they all kind of work in different ways for different people. Mm, right. So, I mean, that's sort of a positive spin on it, but uh, there's a, a lot of talk also, you know, especially in like variations of like uh, the Twitter sphere right now that, you know, all therapy is basically useless <laughs> and it's a waste of your time. It's a waste of your money. I saw a tweet like the other day that was like, um, don't go to therapy, just like go to just like get a gym membership or something like that. And it's like, right. um, well, I already have a gym membership. Thank you. But um, <laughs> I go pretty regularly. But like, uh, you know, it's um, th that's sort of like the the other attitude. There's sort of a swinging in the opposite direction. So I sort of see in some ways there's kind of two cultural currents right now. There's a sort of like um, uh, when you, you spoke in the beginning about sort of the ascent of a kind of therapeutic culture, right? This idea that everybody needs to go to therapy and everybody has trauma that they need to work through and we should all just be like introspecting all the time. That's sort of like one cultural current. Um, and I think, unfortunately, these currents are, they tend to be, I mean, it seems as if they're politically self-sorted. I don't know if that's actually true. That would be an interesting thing to find out if like, liberals or conservatives are more or less likely to go to therapy. I would guess that it is politically biased. Um, that being said, the the other current is sort of this, this um, more um, dismissive approach, which just says, you know what, therapy is just a waste of time. Don't even do it. Um, just focus on like improving, improving your life, improving your, your conditions and other like more material ways. Um, and forget about, you know, all this, uh, all this talking nonsense, you're just sort of uh, doing a bunch of like rumination and paying someone a lot of money for it. What do you what do you think about those that, that sort of framing of the debate? It seems to me like it's sort of polarizing in those two directions. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with you. And um, it, it's, to me, it seems to be polarized around, there's a left versus right thing. There's also, I think, a masculine, feminine, uh, thing there too, right? I mean, maybe those are, are mm. correlated, but um, but yeah, you do have the people who have sort of gone overboard on on therapy and mental health culture and turned everything into kind of a mental health issue. Uh, to which the you know the way to deal with it is to talk about it sort of endlessly. Uh, and then on the other side, you've got the the people who are like, okay, no talking, let's just make money and work out and stuff. Um, I, th I think like if if making money and working out makes you feel better, I think that's great. And actually, one of the things that therapists or the, the sort of mental health uh, community, I think, is in a terrible job of is is dealing with men, because a lot of the time, mm. the reason men feel bad is because they're like low on the status pole, you know, right. and right. it's like they don't maybe they your life would is act actually just kind of crappy right now. And that's why you feel bad. <laughs> yeah, like like, you know, I. I really think that if if most, maybe not most, but if a lot of men who are just depressed, if you took them out of their lives and you you suddenly made them like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or some billionaire or something like that, they would just be like, oh, this is great. I don't feel bad anymore, you know? Uh, mm. So there is, there is that aspect to it, which is like, if you feel bad and you feel unhappy with your life, then figuring out how to actually improve it can be great. Um, now the only the only problem with with that I think is sometimes the reason that you're not improving your life is because there are things about yourself that you don't realize uh, that are standing in your way of just having a, a good life. So 
you know, one really good example is a friend of mine um, who um, has sort of everything going for him in terms of, um, you know, he's he's got money, um, he's got some influence, he's handsome, people like him. Um, but he like just thinks everybody hates him. And there's like, there's no objective reason for it. It's just like in his mind, he's like, oh, everybody hates me. Um, don't know why he's just always been like that. And he actually went to therapy and the therapist just helped him like understand, no, like not everybody hates you. It's in your head. And like nobody else could convince him of this. But talking to a therapist, talking to someone who was sort of, you know, an impartial, neutral observer just made him realize, okay, like it's actually, you know, uh, not a real problem. Uh, except for in my head. And that helped him then make friends and, and go and live the good life he wanted to live. So there are definitely people, I think, who have real mental blocks and who a sort of objective third party can help them deal with. Does that person, though, need to be trained in psychology? Do they have to have read Freud or gotten you know an advanced degree? Like, I don't think so. But I just do mm. think there are, are people that can give you some perspective. And I think that is the real value in um in in therapy for sort of you know most people that that's sort of setting aside people with like schizophrenia or something which is sort of another conversation right so it may also be that the severity of the symptoms or the level of distress uh requires a more advanced uh you know training let's just say um whereas for most people that are like within a moderate range of uh mental wellness or, um, you know, just having some mild symptoms, it doesn't seem to matter that much, the education level of the therapist. Yeah, and I would, I would, I mean, I'm not certain of this, but I would also wonder whether for people with more advanced problems, it matters a ton too. Um, mm. Because, I mean, I if, if someone has really bad schizophrenia, I mean, I don't really know if anybody knows like what to do to help that person uh tremendously other than you know maybe pharmacological options um but yeah that 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 to me seems like um uh one of those things where maybe experience maybe it's just know-how maybe some people are just better at communicating with other people or helping to helping them to understand their own internal states but um it doesn't it doesn't seem to me like doing tons and tons of coursework or passing some fancy degree is necessarily going to translate into um, being better, just helping people with their most basic problems. Right, right. So, um, well, one offshoot of that, if I were to take that seriously um, and uh, I was in a position to do something with that information uh, would be that I would uh, perhaps consider lowering the requirements for someone to become a licensed uh you know mental health professional uh across the board um you know maybe to just increase accessibility to therapy drive the price down whatever it may be um it seems like you could make a very good case for that uh if it turns out that uh you know you just a lot of the stuff is like for lack of a better term just gatekeeping yeah uh and it's actually funny so like people have known that this is gatekeeping for years um what one of the books i have over over actually i'll, I'll show the camera it's a great book i recommend anyone who's interested in reading how the cards by robin dawes this book mm -hmm. came out in i think 1990 something but this this book just shows all the gatekeeping it just it's it all it does is summarize like clinical evidence and things and and just uh, makes it pretty obvious that these higher levels of expertise or credentials or sometimes even experience don't lead to people being able to deliver better outcomes for their patients. Um, and I do think that the obvious, as you as you put it, the obvious um, uh, policy recommendation that follows from that is you should make it way easier for people to become mental health professionals. You should lower the certification standards um, and even the education standards. Like, it's easier for most people to become a lawyer than it would be to become a clinical psychologist. Right. Yes. And we have way, we've got way too many lawyers and not enough clinical psychologists. 
um to be a clinical psychologist right you well, have how to do, do how your... do we know we don't have enough clinical psychologists <laughs> okay well fair enough uh the, the the reason i would say we don't have enough um let, let me reason we don't have enough people who are treating people with severe mental health issues okay maybe those should be clinical psychologists maybe not but um but there's massive shortages right not only do people leave these jobs because they say they're burned out um but uh there's just uh simply not enough um people who are are wanting to do what's really grueling work for you know pay that's compared to other advanced professionals you know not amazing um and even many people who do become clinical psychologists there's uh just such a backlog of patients that they just get you know pushed into working overtime uh, mm -hmm. only seeing their patients for very, very, very short windows because they have to squeeze so many people in. I mean, for those people, if you talk to them, they are really stressed. And they, uh, I think, a lot of the time wish that there were more people coming into that field. So um, making it easier for people to to do that, I think, would be, uh, at least in terms purely of just filling the backlog of, of people who need help, um, you know, a great start. Yeah. And so I'm glad that we got on the topic of sort of the kinds of people that are going into the field, both the quality and quantity, the level of training needed. Um, because another post that you did um, was basically about the fact that a lot of psychologists are very sad. <laughs> and this has been like a trope in popular culture for a long time. You mentioned some of the examples, Goodwill Hunting and others uh, in the piece. But it turns out that um, the trope, the stereotype is true. And mental health professionals, by and large, have more um, mental health problems than than would be expected from the general population. And... Um, one of the things that you talk about in this piece is that if it appears um, now you just mentioned that a lot of these workers are uh, are stressed by the nature of their work, but it appears that getting a psychology degree or becoming a clinical psychologist, some other mental health professional doesn't induce uh, any kind of more uh, mental illness than would otherwise be be, be hap happening to you. Um, it looks, according to you, that the uh, field itself, basically, there's a selection effect in that people who have a history of mental health issues end up becoming psychologists. And I see a little bit of a tension here between what we just stated, which is like maybe the qualifications for becoming a mental health professional should be reduced. And this other odd thing, which is that it turns out a lot of mental health professionals have uh, mental health problems, which isn't necessarily an indictment of um, of their work or whether you should talk to them or anything else. But it does call into question, I guess, a little bit of like the the standards or like whether you actually want to make the field less selective, let's just say. So do you want to talk a little bit about that um, finding? For sure. Um, so, yeah, I'll just start with the finding, which was um that looking across a bunch of sort of surveys of psychologists um mostly done by psychologists um you can see that a lot of them uh report having you know bad mental health uh being depressed being anxious uh and they report that at higher you know much higher or, or levels excuse me much higher than the general population um you can also sort of see that over time it seems to get worse uh, which is not oh, good, boy. right? You would hope it's heading in the other direction. Some of some of that may have to do with the field is is becoming more uh, and more female, and women on average, you know, have higher rates of mental health issues. So that might explain some of it. But uh, yeah, in any case, I mean, it's not inspiring because, like, if you uh, learn that doctors were like sicker than the you know average uh, person in the population you might be more skeptical of doctors, right? Especially if you take a specialty. Like if you learn that most oncologists had cancer at higher rates than people, other people in the population, you would sort of think, okay, well, that's, there's something wrong there, right? The people who are treating this problem shouldn't be having it disproportionately. But with mental health uh, professionals, um, you know, that's what you see. So um, 
And, and then, as you said, you know, well, you might think, okay, it's due to stress, which I'm sure some of it is. And, you know, I'm sure being around other mentally ill people makes you more mentally ill. Uh, but a lot of it seems to be coming from self-selection. So people who are choosing to major in psychology or treat people with mental illness, um, a lot of the time they themselves have had mental illness and they're now curious about why. Maybe they have family members with mental illness, which you know, spoiler alert, genetically also means they're more likely to have mental illness because it's pretty heritable and all these things. So, um, and, you know, I don't, I, I definitely agree that if you take people who are mentally ill and you put them around other more mentally ill people, I mean, it's not going to, they're not going to feel better, right? They're probably going to feel worse. So there is that sort of structural factor to start with, which in, you know, to your point, uh, may be a reason to increase the uh, sort of scrutiny around who ends up doing this. Um, I guess I would say two things about that. So the first thing is, it's not obvious to me that having a mental health problem that makes you like worse at being a therapist or something like that, mm -hmm. um, or, or worse at treating other people with the issue in terms of people, you know, uh, in those surveys reporting it themselves, very few of them said it impacted their, their work. Although, I mean, I don't know if you should believe that or not. Um, but then the other thing is, I mean, if you screen out those people, who is going to want to do it? Like, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe it's the kind of uh, job where if you don't have people who are doing it because they really feel in their hearts this is a, a good thing to do and I have sort of a desire to uh, heal other people's psyches or something like that, um, maybe it'll just be really hard to fill those positions as it is. So, so in a perfect world, I could kind of see an argument like, okay, you have to pass a certain level of mental fitness to to be in this role, and and perhaps yeah. that would actually be the ideal situation. Um, but maybe as things are, uh, that's too much to ask, given there's already not enough people going in. Right. So, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I I I think there is definitely a case to be made that. Uh, I mean, certainly having a history of mental health issues, um, depending on their severity, depending on their, uh, you know, likelihood of like continuing symptoms uh, shouldn't be disqualifying, but it may actually, you know, perhaps make someone besides the fact that it gives them maybe a motivation to, you know, uh, fix others problems or help other people who are going through similar issues, it may actually be helpful in getting them to empathize. I think, um, I mean, I, I don't know. Um, but I, I think there's like a, there's another sort of contrarian take, which is that like you sort of like the, the wounded healer, right. Is an archetype. And, um, that's, I think how a lot of people that go into the profession, at least that I've interacted with, uh, sort of view it. Right. And so, I mean, that's interesting whether the standards for, you know, I, I, what I would say is in defense of of like educational and credential, I'm not, I'm not a credentialist generally, but in defense of the credentialed approach, at least if you can get through that level of training and education, it shows a certain level of like executive functioning and maybe conscientiousness. Um, and I'm sure there's like some other IQ filter as well. Um, and I mean, I can't imagine that that would be worse for the level of care given. Um, but you're saying that it's doesn't appear to actually have a lot of effect. If you, if you take, you know, I don't know, a high school counselor or something like that. And you compare them to a clinical um, psychotherapist. The clinic, the clinical psychologist has been through a lot more training, um, and yet you're saying that the data doesn't indicate significant improvement based on this. Yeah, um, and it's interesting because uh, I mean, there's a lot in there in what you just said, but to that to that last point, um, a lot of a lot of mental health problems like don't i wouldn't say don't have turnkey solutions like it's uh, goodwill hunting which which we talked about a bit earlier is like one of my favorite movies and, and one of the reasons it's such a great movie a psych a psychological movie is that at the end um you know the robin williams character basically just says it's not your fault 
over and over again. And uh, Matt Damon character starts crying and then he's like better. And then he goes and lives like a great life. And, um, you know, I just, if, if treating people psychologically were like that, where it's like you find the one thing and then you turn, turn that key and then suddenly they're all better, then maybe there would be a, an argument for, okay, you need the smartest people to do this. Um, but I'm not totally sure if they're, if it's like that, maybe for some people it is, but in general, a lot of the people who are, are mentally ill and things like that, uh, basically just need to be cared for. And so I, I almost think almost somebody maybe who's more of an EMT type person, someone who's, you know, comfortable with taking risks, who cares about people, um, who's willing to act quickly. Um, perhaps that is a better psychological profile for a mental health worker than somebody who's like a, a genius. Um, you know, I mean, if the G if the genius is, we're really, if being a genius is really doing most of the heavy lifting, then I think you would see it show up, right? So you would really see the smarter people being better therapists uh, and, and or having better outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, but you just don't see that, which makes me think it's just not that kind of problem. Right. So, so it could be more about a personality fit uh, or I mean, some other you, you ever, you ever, you ever meet somebody and you can immediately sort of know what their problem is? Like, you know what I mean? Like sometimes you, you, you meet somebody, you interact with somebody and you just realize, Oh, this person's just really shy or, Oh, this person's mm -hmm. just really angry or something like that. Um, and you know, it doesn't take a genius to notice those things. What it does take is just someone who has outside perspective to then say like, okay, you seem angry, you know, how do you deal with that? Or so, yeah, I, I think it's less genius and just more perspective. Mm, okay. Okay. Yeah. So I guess we've talked a little bit about, um, about the efficaciousness of various psycho or talk therapies. We've talked about psychologists themselves. Um, I'm curious, like, what are some of the other kind of main, uh, issues that you have bouncing around in your head, uh, to sort of take a look at and apply this sort of data driven approach um, to the field. What, what have you been um, pondering? Um, I guess a lot of stuff that falls under the sort of, is it true? They say it in popular mental health culture, is it true? And then in some stuff that's sort of about what's coming next. So in the first bucket, like um, I'm very interested in, questions about like the demographics of therapists and whether that affects uh, people's response. Cause like, there's lots of people who will say things like, Oh, like if you're black, you need to have a black therapist, or if you're a woman, you need to have a woman therapist. And a, it's, it's seen as something you're sort of entitled to, but the entitlement is based on essentially some kind of evidence. Right. So you know, I'm I'm really interested in looking more into that and seeing whether that holds up. Ostensibly, I, ostensibly, some kind of evidence. I mean, it just seems so superficial, right? Um, that some random identity characteristic would need to be the same, uh, especially given that we've talked about all the ways in which individual variation doesn't matter. Yeah, right. Like already, <laughs> uh, <laughs> how smart they are, how educated they are, this, that, the other thing. I mean, I can't imagine that. Um, out of all the variation that would matter, something is so uh surface level as that would would be like the big thing, you know, that's going to get you an improvement. Um, yeah, so, I mean that's. I mean, I, that, that I guess was... I look forward. I look forward to you uh, maybe debunk debunking some of that. Well, it was it was something a lot of my friends used to always say uh, growing up is like, like I had a friend who was Korean and she'd say like, oh, you have to have like a Korean therapist because how in the world is some Jewish guy going to understand, you know, like everything I go through or something like that. Um, and it just seems to me like a very pervasive myth. So I, I mean, well, I don't know it's a myth. I think it's a myth. So I'm, I'm going to look into that. Um, mm -hmm. I think stuff around like, um, there's all these people who are talking about, you know, chat GPT and artificial intelligence. And yeah. I think we actually talked oh, quite a long time ago. I think we talked a bit about this on, on Twitter. Um, uh, about whether that is going to be a successful replacement for therapists, right? 
And mm -hmm. I think if you buy into sort of my model of therapy, I think it leads, it would lead you to think, yeah, this is not a elite skill. This is someone who's talking to somebody, asking questions, giving perspective, showing warmth. But if you take the view that it's more of a, uh, you know, comprehensive personal process, then it's, then yeah, then, then maybe uh, you really do need a person who knows you and your history and cares and things like that. Um, so right, like well, right now tons. I, I, so I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I have, no, no, I no. have one, I have like an interesting point about that, which is that, um, so yeah, I mean, given it's it's plausible right that i can train and and you know i know there are companies working on this i was looking into this i don't know five or six years ago um you know ai uh ai therapist a lot of people have been working on this for a long time and it's finally getting to the point where it might be uh real or effectively real and one of the things that i think is like odd is that like yes I could train an algorithm to be able to spit out responses to you. And I guess, you know, now we could even do it. It doesn't even have to be text. It could also be, you know, voice um, and video even that approximate maybe even to a degree that's like noticeably, uh, you know, reasonably undetectable. Um, what, kind of responses you would get from being with an actual human therapist but i would wonder if part of the psychological component is the point about being seen like you said earlier that what a lot of these people need is maybe someone that actually just cares about them and i'm wondering if maybe it would be ineffective for you to hear the right things from a machine, knowing that it's a machine, instead of knowing that it's another human being. Hmm. Hmm. Well, there, there are some people who, uh, like Robin Dawes, who I, I mentioned earlier, who has that book, who have said things like therapy is just really, it's just sort of friendship, right? When you have hmm. a therapeutic experience or having a friendship experience that is sort of structured in such a way that you don't know that that's what's happening. But ultimately, it is. And so if therapy really is about a connection, about, you know, a friendship, then yeah, maybe you would need a person, you would need to feel there's a person at the other end, you know, who is, uh, and that I guess would be the difference between like doing online therapy and a chatbot, right? Online therapy, at least you're, you know, there's some person at the other end, sipping uh, his coffee, who is, is reading what you're saying and, and cares and then writes back. And so maybe if it is that psychological experience that is what people want, then uh, AI therapy wouldn't be enough. Yeah, or maybe it would be. Maybe people would just convince themselves that this machine actually cares about me. I mean, there's that um, that case of the Google engineer who thought that the AI was like real, like a sentient being. And, you know, uh, I, I'm sure that if people haven't already, like someone's going to fall in love with an AI at some point. So <laughs> there's, like... there's great, there's great things about the uh, great videos about like the uh, AI girlfriends that people have. Right. And, mm -hmm. and oftentimes it's just like a voice spot. Like it's not even like a picture or something, yeah. but you know, these, these engineers in China or whatever, like falling in love with this voice bots. And yeah, maybe, maybe for a lot of this stuff, it just will trick us and we'll just be okay with it. And there, there, to me, there also do seem to be some advantages of talking to a per or a bot, you know, is not real. So for example, you might be more honest about how you actually feel with a robot than you would be with a person. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd have some serious privacy concerns, but <laughs> uh, well, you know, I mean, you're trusting the company basically that owns the robot. Uh, and there's, there've been all like, well, at least in a therapeutic set, uh, setting, there's like a, um, you know, there are like ethical standards for the field. There's like the therapist client relationship, which is supposed to be, um, you know, kind of like sacred. The only ways you can really like get information out of it is for like uh, legal reasons, basically. Um, so, 
you know, a bot, it, it doesn't feel liable in the same way with your, uh, with your secrets. And it's really just, um, you know, you're trusting that company and whatever their data policy is, uh, that they're going to keep their word and not leak anything or give it to the wrong person or, um, uh, you know, wantonly hand it over to some authority or, or whatever. Right. It, it's a, it's a huge problem actually, because I think there are a few, I'm pretty sure I read about this. I'm there in the economist. I think there've been a few mental health app companies that were hacked and their data mm. did get leaked. And, right. uh, you know, to, to the, what makes, what makes a good, what makes a private AI chatbot good in terms of honesty makes it terrible in terms of a data leak. Right. So that is like yeah. a big problem. Although I guess that's also a problem with all sort of online, you know, software. So, but, but maybe the, the AI chatbot is the most, uh, or therapy bot is the most uh, vulnerable. Yeah, maybe you should just do it in person and not have it recorded. How about that? <laughs> if you were really concerned about privacy, how about we just go to total analog? Um, yeah. Okay. So, so that's like a new development. Um, and you know, we'll see where it goes. Um, I wanted to ask you then, I guess, about your uh, most recent piece, um, which is uh, about loneliness. And loneliness has been declared kind of a public health problem. There's a way in which the public health apparatus, um, you know, one cynical take on this is that the public health apparatus is just sort of expanding to fill available space. And now that there's no pandemic, it has to come up with new epidemics to address. Um, another take on this is that loneliness is actually genuinely a problem and the public health authorities are just acknowledging it and deciding to treat it as such. Um, but you wrote this piece. Um, it can be, it called, can be both. Well, yeah, it could, it could also be both. Right. Yeah. So you wrote this piece called loneliness isn't a public health problem. Um, and so I wanted to just, um, I guess we can wrap up with this and go into a little bit of like your thinking on this, because I have, um, I have a question in the back of my mind about kind of the conclusion that you drew um, but I wanted you to sort of just kind of lay out the general argument and then we can go into some of the details. Sure. So my argument here is that um, when I say, when I, when I title it, loneliness isn't a public health problem, what I sort of mean is like, that's not the best way to categorize it or characterize it like truly. Uh, and it's sort of weird that we're doing it like that. But nevertheless, it might actually be better to treat it as a public health problem because that seems to be the main way that we actually deal with social problems now. So the argument briefly goes like this. So loneliness is a big problem um, in America and elsewhere. You can see that sort of trends around loneliness. So like people saying they feel lonely, people spending uh, less time with friends and family, more time alone, people not feeling like they belong to a social group. These have been increasing very slowly for for a long time, like, you know, um, since the mid 70s, basically. And the internet has made them worse, COVID has made them worse, but these are sort of long standing social trends. And I think COVID is when people sort of really realized, okay, this is really, really terrible. And now uh, the public health authorities, especially the Surgeon General, want to, to do something about it. And the main way they're trying to frame the whole issue is not that loneliness is like bad because it sucks to be lonely, but that loneliness is bad because it'll kill you. So they they mm -hmm. give all these sort of correlations uh, and associations um, that show that like people who are really, really lonely or really socially disconnected are more likely to die early or to have a heart attack or um, uh, what was the other one? Um, maybe uh, diabetes or cancer. I mean, on their website and in their, their strategy document, they have just tons and tons of these studies. Um, so I don't deny that the, those associations exist. Um, however, to me, it seems like strange that we have to talk. The only reason we're really doing something about this and the way we're framing it is in this public health way, because there are all kinds of, of, of social problems that correlate with bad health outcomes. So like the examples I give are divorce, um, sexlessness, being incarcerated, like all of those correlate strongly with dying early and having heart attacks and things like that. 
But it would just seem wrong to sort of say we're going through an epidemic of incarceration or divorces or something like that. Um, because those are social psychological problems that have social psychological uh, causes. But nevertheless, I finished by arguing, even though I don't really think we should be thinking about loneliness in this way, it may be that because our society is so medicalized, because people care so much about their health, and because with the COVID pandemic, individuals, companies, governments have been shown that they will mobilize to protect vulnerable people's health, it may be better still to frame loneliness as a health problem, because if we do, people might actually do something about it. Okay, so... One of the takes on one of the cuts on this is that um, they are, you know, there is this real social problem. And the only way you can get people motivated enough to address it is by calling it a public health problem and saying that it's going to be bad for you for all these reasons. Um, another cut on this is that sort of the problem that they've identified to call it a public health problem is maybe too indirect because you're essentially saying that there's no causal um, relationship or at least there doesn't appear to be, or, or maybe it's too hard to pin down with all these associations and correlations. Um, and one of the objections that I had when I was reading this and like, I think your point is well taken. Like it's not, it's very fuzzy the extent to which something like loneliness or lack of personal interaction or meaningful relationships with others or whatever um, is bad for you, right? Um, in a, I don't know, biological sense. But one, you know, I, I'm not sure how clear of a separation there is between your like subjective well-being and your overall well-being. So if like the purpose of health or of public health is to increase the public's general well-being physically and mentally, then I think it's hard to know where you delineate someone's subjective well-being from their actual well-being. So that would be like the first thing I would say. And then the second thing is um, I'm aware and I, I didn't have time to look into this research before we spoke today, but I am aware of a body of research that indicates, for example, that due to modularity in the brain, a lot of negative emotions are physiologically experienced in the same way as uh, dealing with like physical pain or some mm -hmm. kind of physical illness. So, for example, um, the stuff that I read usually has to do with like depression. And what's weird about depression is that there's it's not just, oh, I'm feeling down. I'm feeling, you know uh dour i can't find any joy in my daily experiences there's actually a whole bunch of physical correlates that come along with a depressed person right some people say that it looks like inflammation in the body um and so those would be sort of the two things that i would say point to me that i don't think it's necessarily inaccurate to try to deal with a let's just say um general lack of subjective well-being as a health issue because of the fact that a it's very hard to draw the line between how someone feels internally and their general like health mental health whatever mm -hmm. it may be and b uh it just it is just true that like lonelier people are more stressed out lonelier people um experience you know higher degrees of negative emotions and these negative emotions do have an effect inside the body. Um, so what do you think of that? So, um, so, so, so the first one was that subjective and sort of objective discomfort or dishealth or, or disease, right? Disease are, are related. And then the second one was that, uh, well, it was sort of a similar point, right? That, you can have real physical, you know, pain caused by an emotional problem. Right. So and, the second and, one and, is like more of a particularity on the more general point, which is the first one. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's all true. And I, I um, one thing that I, I originally had in that paper that I, I took out was, a uh, just to keep it short, was a bit of um, 
explainer on sort of the relationship between those things. So, you know, the more I learn about mental health and sort of mental discomfort and all kinds of things, the more it seems to me that sort of everything is correlated, right? So you have something like a P factor, which is, you know, all kinds of psychological problems are are all correlated with each other. And then you sort of have clusters within them. Um, but then we also have now someone recently released a thing called the, the D factor, which is disease factor, uh, which is sort of taking a similar idea to all of health. So you, they started noticing, okay, well, this P factor correlates with all these other health problems. Uh, mm-hmm. And so maybe there's actually this sort of overall, uh, overall D factor, which is just how prone to disease is a person, right? And that's going to have a substantial genetic component, but it's also probably going to have a substantial environmental component and in interactions because one could imagine how sort of, you know, if you become really lonely or really anxious or something like that, you're going to see people less and take care of your health less and things like that. So there is a more holistic way of looking at all this that I do agree with you um, is factually true. Um, so I suppose my objection to that is to me, it seems like we're as a society moving more in that direction, but that is actually taking away from, um, looking closely at what the problem that we actually care about is. Uh, and so I, I see this a lot with all kinds of things, whether it's, it's mental health or physical health, but we start talking about problems as if the thing that's bad about the problem is it has these side effects, these like health effects, right? Mm. So for getting broken up with is bad because like it's bad for your mental health. Um, right, right. <laughs> you know, or uh, or going through a, a There's an epidemic is... of people getting dumped. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sure like I'm sure somebody could could frame it uh, all kinds of social issues in that way. And mm. um. The truth is that if we like, like something that bugs me about kind of public health people and and amateur sociologists is they sort of do this thing where they're like, well, everything's connected, right? And yeah. and so if you're born poor, you're more likely to be sort unhealthy. Of a banal, it's sort of a banal point, right? Like it's yeah, it's a banal point. And but I think coming on the other side of that, I'm at least I'm starting to see okay, like everything is connected, but it might it's it might be connected because. Uh, there's some people who are just sort of born to be healthy and do well and feel good. And some people who are born to feel really miserably and as, you know, not necessarily as a result, but maybe just a correlate, you know, have worse lives. And I I mean, that's a terrible truth, but I I think increasingly we're realizing that. Um, But my, my, my point with this piece more is like, what is the way we want to look at all of this? Uh, Is the, is the, is the best lens to view social problems through a medical lens where everything becomes about this core, like this leading to people to be more stressed or more anxious, or I mean, a long time ago it was low self-esteem, right? Which has sort of gone away a bit, but like, is the problem with all the bad things that they're bad intrinsically and so we should get rid of them or that they lead to these sort of bad medical things we can check. And I think as we move towards a more health focused, public health dominated society, everything is being more and more like a checklist where all the bad things are sort of these um it's uh these secondary it's, things it reminds me of that uh i don't know if you listen to radiohead at all there's uh, uh yes a lot <laughs> yeah filter happier i think is the song where fitter, fitter just, happier right fitter happier yeah yeah that's yeah. it so where he's just going through like the list of it, it it's sort of like a some sort of like a robotic health person <laughs> listing off all the things that he's done to like improve his life recently. It's like eating regularly, like getting enough sleep, like whatever. Right. And um, that's sort of the, the, I guess, nightmare scenario I'm imagining when you're describing this sort of like public healthization of everything. Um, it's, you know, and, and, and maybe, Maybe it is, it's more, a me- it's a medicalization of everything or something, but uh, I mean, this is a totally unrelated example, but a friend of mine recently went to do one of those cold plunges, you know, where you like yeah. go in and you're just freezing or whatever. And I was like, <laughs> how was it? And he was like, oh, like it was a huge dopamine hit. And I was like, do you mean right. like it felt good? He was like, no, it was like a dopamine hit. I'm like, okay, like it. it everything is, is becoming, and perhaps it's just new language. I'm not sure, but 
to me, it seems like we're moving away from talking about things in and of themselves and more towards just the side effects of those things or the neurochemical, uh, you know, reaction we have to those things. And I think that's like, a that's, if we're talking purely truthfully, I think that's not the best way to, to look at why problems are bad um, and to address them. Hmm. So, yeah, so, so I guess what you're kind of saying is that like, there's one thing that's going on, which is like the, the labels that we're applying to problems are kind of like too broad, right? And that you want more like specificity or you want like um, better descriptions of what it is that we're actually trying to address, right? So saying something like there's an epidemic of loneliness well, it may be true that like loneliness is going up and there are a lot of like sociological reasons why and it's something that we want to address. Um, you're sort of saying that like dealing with that as a description of the problem is kind of too low resolution. And um, it like, would that be fair to say? It would be fair to say. And as I say uh, later, it might it might be a low, it might be a better way to actually fix it. But in terms of how we're all thinking about these things too low, yeah, too low resolution is, is bang on. Mm. And, um, and then I guess the other possible or like another way of like objecting to this is that like, maybe we just shouldn't make everything a public health problem, right? Like maybe if people are more lonely, there needs to be, I don't know, some sort of uh, more, more like, bottom-up um, set of solutions, right? Like maybe we need to reinvigorate community organizations or uh, get people to, you know, be members of church. Or I, I think in the article you talk about, you know, previously religious institutions would have like served, a, a, would have played a role in like alleviating some of these problems. And so I guess another angle on this is just that public health is kind of like the wrong vehicle for thinking about how to address um, some of these problems? Well, I mean, um, you know, it's, it's like, again, I, I go back to the example of if we had, if we we're talking about an epidemic of divorces or an epidemic of incarceration, like, I think that would just sound silly to people, right? Because mm -hmm. they would say, um, they would, even, even though those are all social things, right? As is loneliness, but people would say like no this is not uh, a health problem this doesn't require doctors to be talking about this like when you go to your doctor should your doctor tell you hey like you should really not get divorced like is that you know because if you if you do then you're gonna have a heart attack or you're more likely to have a heart attack like that would strike yes. people as odd right <laughs> um no i mean what I, why not it's worth considering right like hey your life is going to be worse if you uh if you do this, well, I was, I was, I was actually thinking maybe I should write like a companion piece to this and pitch it to like some conservative uh, magazine and be like, you know, like this, the social conservative case for turning all social issues into public health issues. And, uh, you know, just be like, oh, well, if you get divorced, actually, you're going to die more. And like every doctor should be uh, telling everybody that. And, you know, there's uh there's sort of a way you could frame it um, that way too. But but my point is it's absurd is it's it's making that category of public health problems way too broad. Right, right. OK, so, I mean, I think we've done like a good overview of kind of the people get a taste for what your project's um, about and really what you're doing. I would just say as like a, a, a final compliment to you that I, I really actually kind of like the um the format of uh of your writing like it's um you put together these pieces that are like not too long but detailed enough to get the point across and provide substantive evidence and the way that you um sort of frame each topic so far it's like um the only word i can think of it's like very consumable so um i think it's an interesting project what you're doing and i'm excited to see like more stuff that you're going to be working on in the future um anything uh you want to say before we um before we head out um well first of all thank you for the compliment um and yeah i guess i would just say that you know mental health right now is in a sort of interesting um 
period where there's a lot of stuff happening in the startup world. A lot of new kind of um, technologies are being uh, used to sort of push older products or services or ideas and things like that. Um, so I think it's a really cool time to be creative in the mental health world and to be paying attention. But I also think it's a time when a lot of the same sort of replication crisis slop and, and you know, poorly designed study methodology and all the stuff is going to come back. But this time it's going to have a lot of money behind it. Um, so, you know, just be careful with uh, the, uh, the stuff you're uh, potentially investing in or doing. But at the same time, you know, don't... Uh, don't let data get in the way of, of having fun and exploring, you know, your new chatbot girlfriend therapist. or whatever. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. OK, well, thank you so much, Jonah. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you, uh, everyone. You can find Jonah at his Substack at mentaldisorder.substack.com on Twitter at Jonah Davids one. And this has been another episode of the Hacking Safe podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Alex.